The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. Well, we're continuing our study through Genesis, and in preparation for that, I was reminded of a time that I was on a jury, and I've shared this with, with several of you before. Uh, if you've been with me a long time, you know this story, but it was, a big, it was a big event in my life. I was walking through the process just like you do. You get the little note that ruins your day. You've got a jury duty, or you've got to come up to see if you're going to be selected for your jury duty, and I end up getting selected. Not only do I get selected, but I end up somehow stumbling into being the foreman of the jury, and the jury was a very serious case. It was one where they were seeking the death penalty, and so it was a very uh, meaningful time for me. It's uh, one of those need-to-know basis is where you realize, I need to know what the Bible says about this. And so I began to search the scriptures on God's justice, on capital punishment, on all those issues. And uh, it, was a, it was a very um, life-changing experience in the sense it's one of those events where I learned a lot uh, through that. In that process, I learned the, 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 the justice requires certain behaviors. For us to live in a just society... With, which is governed by just laws, uh, then if you are carrying out justice, there are certain required behaviors. Justice demands that the guilty is punished and the not guilty is not punished. It, it sounds pretty simple, but uh, the idea is actually quite comforting. If you ever find yourself uh, in that situation where you are on jury duty and what you'll find is there is great comfort in the fact that the law says that by law, we as a jury, if we found that the evidence supported beyond a reasonable doubt that this was present, this guilt and this specific details were present, then you must decide this. Like it was basically laid out for you. If you found this, then you must do this. This is justice. If you find this, then you must do this. And that would be like not guilty. And so the law, justice, demanded certain behaviors. And the essence of it was, which we all know, is that if they were guilty, they were by law required to be punished. If they were not guilty, then by law they were required to be let go. Not guilty, acquitted. And so in today's text, we see those same concepts being raised in Genesis chapter 18 through the end of chapter 19. Uh, we are going to ask the question, is God just? Now, I don't like to elevate myself in the position of putting God on trial, but that's actually what the text allows us to do. The text raises the question, is God just? And so we're going to try to answer that question. The question is presented in 18, chapter 18, verse 25. Abraham asked the Lord, basically asked out loud, far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you to treat the righteous and the wicked the same. You wouldn't do that, right, God? Because you're a just God. You're not going to punish the righteous when you punish the wicked, is what he's getting at. And then this, this very helpful statement that, has been very helpful to me in many, many years of ministering to people when they're going through something that is hard to understand or addressing questions that are hard to understand. I always come back to this verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth 
do what's just. And see, we've been getting to know the God who created everything, and we are getting to know him. But at the same time, we've been seeing Abraham has been on a journey from Genesis 16 to Genesis 22. We called it last week his sanctification. He's been learning obedience. He's been learning things about God. And now we see he's learning, the, he's, he's having to address the question, is God just? So we're daring to put God on trial because the Bible puts it on trial or puts him on trial and and invites us into this matter and says, I want you, reader of the Bible, to settle this matter in your heart once and for all. You may look around and have questions. You may wonder because things don't turn out. You may think this sounds harsh. You may think that, but you need to settle the matter once and for all in your heart. Is God just? Lord, I pray this morning as we look at the scriptures that we come to know you as the just judge who always does what's right, that we may worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to work through this text, and in verse 16, we pick up 18, chapter 18, verse 16. What's interesting is we see God raising this issue, God's provoking Abraham to think about this. They're leaving the scene that we were looking at last week, which is where Sarah laughed about being pregnant at 100 and said, no, I didn't laugh. And God said, no, but you did laugh. And she goes, okay, I laughed. I'm sorry about that. And then we're walking away. As they're walking away, you've got the the messengers of the Lord walking with Abraham. and, And the messenger of the Lord says out loud, knowing Abraham's there, says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is clearly a teachable moment. This is like we do with our kids. You're you're kind of thinking a whole lot deeper than your kids are thinking when you're walking around in life and you see a teachable moment. Hey, you know, should I hide from you what I'm about to do? What, What are you talking about? Abraham, God is saying to Abraham, I want you to settle this matter in your heart. What is he about to do? He is about to address the issue, is God just in his judgment against the wicked? So what do we need to do to consider if God is just? What do we need to do to declare God just? Well, we need to see, does God punish the guilty and not the innocent? And so how do we do that? Well, we consider the evidence, like a trial, you consider the evidence against the defendant. And that's what this whole text invites us to do. He is saying to Abraham, I want you to come down and I want you to watch and I want you to look at the evidence. And that's what he's doing to us as readers. He says in verse 20, I've heard their sin is very grave. I will go down and see. So he's inviting us as readers to go down to the city of Sodom and look at their lives, look at what's going on in the city, and decide, are they guilty, are they deserving of the punishment they're about to get, or not? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go down with the, the, the messengers of God to the city of Sodom, and we're going to look, are they guilty? If they are guilty, justice demands that they're punished. Because an honest, just judge does not look at guilty people and say, ah, don't worry about it. And we get that when it's someone that we love. 
If someone has done us wrong or have committed egregious crime against someone we love, we want justice, and rightly so. And God says one day, vengeance is mine, I will get justice. But we know from our own hearts, it's not right for for a judge to let a guilty criminal off the hook. And so we want to say, all right, is this person guilty? Okay, if so, then they should be punished. Is this person not guilty? Okay, well, then they should be left to hook. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look. But before we head down to Sodom with them, Abraham pauses the scene and launches into this series of questions where he's badgering God in a very interesting scenario. Look at verse 24. Abraham says, well, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom... 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, hmm, God's on trial. Is God just? I'm already going, well, I mean, that's not justice. He said, I will spare the entire city if there's 50 righteous people there. He didn't say, I'll spare the 50 righteous people. He said, I'll spare them all. Well, that's pretty merciful. That's pretty gracious. But how, what does that tell us about God so we're going to start figuring all these things out. So he says, well, okay, well, what if I find 45 people? Verse 28, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Okay, well, what if there's, okay, for the sake, what if there's uh, 40 people for the sake of, 40 people will you just, I will not for the sake of 40. Well, what if there's 30 for the sake of 30, I will not destroy it. Well, what if there's 20 for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Okay, don't be mad at me, please. But what if there's 10? For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Do you get the point? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. What's the point? I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Okay? What are we also learning about God? God is patient. I mean, think about in human terms the most powerful judge of the land, Supreme Court Justice, and you walking up to them going, oh, wait a minute, let me talk about this for a minute. Let's negotiate some terms here. How dare you? But then to find that Supreme Court Justice going, it's okay. Merciful, kindness, gracious. So the God that we want to put on trial when we say, how could a good, loving God punish the wicked? How could anybody be punished? How could there be a hell? When we ask those questions, we're putting God on trial. The ultimate creator, judge of the universe. We may not realize it, but we need to realize that's what we're doing, and we need to check ourselves just a bit. So far, I'm seeing God is very patient and kind and even kind enough to let us question him and address him and to consider these issues in the first place. But let me ask you something. Why is Abraham so concerned about Sodom? What's his, I mean, has he just got this, he wanted a vacation in Sodom? I mean, it's just a great city. Don't destroy the city. Why does he care? Right. Lot, 19 verse 1, the two angels 
came to Sodom. We're down to Sodom now. In the evening, and Lot was sitting there at the gate. Look who we see, Lot, sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now we know why Abraham was so concerned, because it is affecting someone in his family. And isn't that the way it is with us? We want to be all about justice and all about, yeah, we get what we deserve. If someone does this, then you should, you should, the full extent of the law against them. But when it's my kid, wait a minute, I want mercy, I want grace. And so here we see Abraham very concerned because he knows his nephew Lot is in Sodom. And Sodom's about to be wiped out for their wickedness. And so Abraham is saying, God, are you going to wipe out the righteous with the wicked? So what is inherent in Abraham's question about this whole scene? What is he assuming about Lot in his question? Again, the question was in verse 25, in verse 18, 25, far be it from you to do such thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So what is he assuming about Lot? That he's righteous. He says, wait, Lot's down there. You're about to wipe them out. Whoa, you're going to wipe out righteous with the wicked. Wait a minute. But he's not so bold to say, what about Lot and his wife and his kids? He says, what about 50? I'm sure there's general concern here for others. And so we need to go down to Sodom, and we need to check out all the characters. And in your study notes this week, this week at Norris Ferry email, we put in there the characters mentioned in this narrative, and we're giving you a fill-in-the-blank that you can discuss this week. I want you to be the jury. I want you to be the jury, and I want you to consider the evidence. I want you to consider the evidence, and in the blanks, looking at the evidence, decide guilty or innocent, each person. Counted with the wicked or counted with the righteous? So we're going to work through the text and we're going to do that. We're going to look at the characters and we're going to see, do we consider their, the evidence of their life, are they counted with the wicked or are they counted with the righteous? Should they be punished or should they be let off the hook? God is on trial. Is he doing the right thing, punishing them? Now, I think you know, you know I think you think you know where the answer is going to go here. Hold on. There's a little twist at the end of the story. It doesn't turn out like you might have thought it would have turned out. So, let's get down there. So, verse 1. Lot. First person we're going to look at. Two angels come down to Sodom in the evening. The Lot was sitting at the gate. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to, meet, face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. That then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. He's like, oh, no, no, no. Strongly, he told them. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, let's pause there. How's he doing so far? What did we say last week? We said it's not about perfection. It's about direction. If Christ has changed your heart, then it will show up if he declares you righteous and you have a new heart that desires righteousness, your life will be about the direction of righteousness. And here we see, okay, he's pursuing, he's showing hospitality, he's protecting these people, he seems to recognize a need to provide for them, and he's doing it. Let's keep going. Verse 4, we see the Sodomites introduced into the story. But before they lay down... 
the, the messengers of God, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, Sodomites, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So here we have the Sodomites represented by this group. How are they? Are they righteous or are they wicked? Are they counted with the righteous or counted with the wicked? Should they be guilty and condemned and judged or should they escape? Verse 5, and they call to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. They do not want to be friends with them. They are called Sodomites, and this is where the name Sodomy came from. This is a wicked city. So far, we're saying, okay, that doesn't look good for the Sodomites. Let's keep going. Verse 6, Lot, what does he do? Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. This looks good for Lot. Lot seems to be a defender of justice. He seems to be defending the people. He's saying, hey, do not do what you intend to do. He's been living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's been living in Sodom. He's seen the Sodomites. He knows the stuff they do. And he's going, no, no, no. You No, you're not doing that. That's good. Let's keep reading verse 8. So, so far, Lot looks good. Then he says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do them as you please. No. What are you doing, Lot? He was doing so good. And now he says, no, don't touch these men. But here, take my daughters. Bad, bad decision. Never a good idea. It appears he's been living in Sodom so long his moral compass has been affected that somehow he thinks this is a good idea and we see that play out in other parts of the text that it appears that him living among wicked people has compromised his judgment so he's this mixed bag is what we kind of see as lot seems to have a direction towards righteousness and fighting for uh, justice and protecting these people but then he does crazy things like this and offers his daughters, which is a terrible thing to do. And so he goes on, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they, verse 9, the men of Sodom said, stand back. And they said, this fellow Lot came to sojourn here, and he has become our judge? The ironic twist of the text, isn't it? Who's the just judge? And now the people of Sodom are saying, oh, you come up here and you think you're going to tell us what's right and what's wrong? Get out of here. We, we, you're in our town. We decide what is justice in this land. Now, we will deal worse with you than with them. And so they turned it on, on Lot as he starts to stand up for justice. They're like, no, you be quiet. And we'll treat you worse than we will him. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. So at this point in the text, the Sodomites are clearly wicked people. They are not innocent people just hoping to trust in the Lord. They are wicked people looking to seize every opportunity and to turn it towards wickedness. So the jury is out on them. The evidence is abundantly clear beyond all reasonable doubt. They are guilty. And so the Lord shuts the door on the Sodomites. Verse 10, but the men 
the Lord's representative, reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house, and with them he shuts the door. They are done, matter settled, and they are struck with blindness. The, the angels of the Lord struck the men with blindness, and so now we picture them as wicked. The door is shut against them, and they are sad, blind to anything good, and they are groping around the house. Groping at the door. So we can close the case on the Sodomites. They're guilty, wicked sinners, and God is just in judging them. But what about Lot's family? What about Lot? What about his family? Verse 12 addresses that. Then the men, the men of the Lord, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place because of the outcry against against its people, has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-law's sons-in-law to be jesting. So here Lot's actions are right again. He is crying a warning. God's judgment is coming But what do we see about the sons-in-law? This phrase, it sounds not so good. They think he's just jesting. They don't heed his warnings about the coming judgment. Let's keep reading verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. See how gracious God is in this scene? The God who is on trial is going way out of his way to do exactly what we would think a just judge would do, would to be to protect the righteous, to not unnecessarily punish anyone who doesn't deserve it. He's patient with these questions. He's gracious to them. He's proactively carving out those who should not be included in those who are going to be punished. And, and this is not the God that we have in mind when we put him on trial and question how dare God do this to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, take your wife, take your daughters, get them out of the city, Lot, verse 16, but Lot lingered there's that mixed bag again everyone get out here take my daughter what now come on y'all God's we got to get out of here be saved repent and leave oh oh, wait I'm not so sure I want to go so Lot is kind of this mixed bag seems to be overall in the right direction but he's certainly not perfect So the men seized him, the men of God seized Lot, mercy, grace, compassion. They didn't say, fine, forget you. You want to linger around here? Be done with you. I warned you. That's not what we see. We see God graciously saying, come on. That's a foolish thing to do. You don't want to linger here. So he grabs them. He seizes them by his hand. He seized his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and they brought him out set him outside the city. 
Verse 17, as they brought them out, one of the messengers said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. So we're tracking through this together. The Lord is warning them, saving them from judgment, being merciful and compassionate so they don't be, so they're not swept away with the wicked. And so this would lead me at this point in the story to conclude at this point, perhaps Lot, who's a mixed bag, is considered righteous in God's eyes. And perhaps his wife is and his daughters are because they all seem to be escaping by God's grace the judgment that has come. So the Sodomites are wicked, deserve judgment. Lot, his wife, and kids seem to be all right. God is sparing them. Lot then dares to ask a favor. Look at verse 18, the boldness and brashness of Lot again. Oh, no, my lords, behold your servant. If I found favor in your sight and you've shown me such great kindness and saved my life, but can I not escape to the hills? Instead, can I escape over here? Lest the disaster overtake me and I die, behold, this city is closer. I think I got a better plan. Let me go to Zohar. That's a lot better than going to the hills. Let me escape there. Is it not a little city and my life will be saved? So again, mixed bag in my eyes about Lot. Verse 21, the messenger said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor. I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. So, Verse 22, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you go there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. So God is gracious again. God says, I'll grant you this favor. You can go to the city of Zoar. And guess what? The whole city of Zoar is spared because of that. I'm not going to wipe out that whole city because you're there. So God's looking pretty gracious, merciful, kind, patient, long-suffering. Then verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This is where you get the traditional fire and brimstone sermons. Fire and brimstone is rained down as punishment on the wicked. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and all that grew on the ground. So this is a terrifying picture of God's judgment on wicked, evil, disgusting sin. And it's real. That's not even in the question here. The question is God just in doing this. And so far, I think we've seen their disgusting sodomizers, wicked people taking advantage of innocent and trying their best to take advantage of people and to be wicked towards them. And any one of us would say, God is just, a judge would be just in punishing such wicked, sinful people. What about Lot's wife? What about Lot's kids? Verse 26, But Lot's wife, behind him, dragging behind, lingering slowly, Look back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, there's different ways to view this in your mind. Well, gosh, that sure was impatient of God. I mean, she just was curious. Is that really the picture the text is presenting here? 
Oh, God's just mean, waiting to zap somebody when they mess up. Is that what this narrative is presenting? No. What this is showing us is Lot's wife longed to be in Sodom. Would rather live in Sodom than with God's people. Felt like she was losing it all to walk away from wicked Sodom and all that was going on in Sodom. She's lingering, she's not wanting to go, and she's longing looking back, and she is counted among the wicked. And so she is punished. God is just in his punishment. In 1927, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. That language is used all throughout the scriptures to describe the punishment of God, the wrath of God on those who were counted wicked. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, listen to this, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. God remembered Abraham. So, to get back where we are on the scene, the only two groups still being spared the judgment are Lot and his daughters. Why were they spared? They just told us. God remembered their sinless behavior. God remembered how good they had lived and that their good deeds outweighed their bad deeds. Is that what it says? God remembered their religious duty that they had performed. Is that what it says? It says, God remembered Abraham. Now, we know from Genesis 15 and 12 and 13, 14, 15, what that means. God remembered his promise to Abraham which was all who have faith in the seed of Abraham, the Messiah, their faith will be counted to them as righteousness, though they are not perfect. 15.6, Genesis 15.6, His faith was credited to him as righteousness. And God made a covenant. All who have the faith of Abraham will be counted as righteous. Though they're not righteous... I will give them credit for the Messiah's righteousness. And they will be counted righteous and they will be spared the punishment that they deserve. The punishment that we see raining down on Sodom. So they were spared. So they were spared though they weren't really righteous in all of their actions. And in case you don't believe that they weren't really righteous, in case you're thinking they were spared because they acted righteous or because their deeds were good, there's one little twist in the story at the end that's put in there to remind us it's not because these were good people and they were better than the Sodomites. Genesis 19.30. Now Lot went up to Zor. This is all post-salvation, post saving them from the the wrath of God. 
Now Lot went up to, the, to Zoar and lived in the hills with the two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, and then we will preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. They became the Moabites. He is the father of the Moabites. Then, he, then the younger bore a son and called him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So Lot is drunk and his daughters are sodomizing. They are not spared because they are better than the sodomites. They are spared only by grace and by the mercy. And the real question of this text is, how dare God spare these wicked Sodom, Sodomite family? Lot deserves to be punished. His kids deserve to be punished just like the rest of them. How can you dare let them go? A just judge should punish wickedness. And he didn't punish them. He let them go. How can he be a just judge? That should be the question we ask. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How dare us ask the question, how could God punish the wicked? What we should be asking is, how does God not punish me? How do I get to escape the wrath of God? I certainly am no better than the Sodomites. My sin may not look like theirs, but I promise you, I am guilty. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you think you're good because you hadn't killed somebody? Look at the anger in your heart. You think you're good because you haven't committed adultery? Think about the lust in your heart. You don't have the same behavior as the Sodomites, but you and I are just as guilty. And the question is, how in the world does any of us escape his judgment? So how do we answer that question? How is God a just judge when he doesn't punish guilty sinners who deserve to be punished? Romans 3, 23, I already read some of it. All of us fall short, all our sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But listen, here's the answer. Verse 24. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, the judge, put forward as a propitiation or atonement or settled a satisfaction or payment for by his blood. He put him forward as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness as a judge. 
Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is God just in letting those who have faith in Christ escape the wrath? Because the judge stepped out from his robe and he took the penalty himself. The penalty was paid. The punishment was executed. The fire and brimstone came down on Jesus instead of me and you if you are trusting only in Jesus. I want to spend some time thinking about this. I want you to just close your eyes. Just draw a circle around yourself privately with God as the band comes. We're going to just enter into a time of prayer. And I hope that you can just quiet your mind. Sometimes when preachers do this with me, I'm thinking about everything except what they want me to think about. So think about this. Privately confess before God your own sin. It may be shameful. You don't want to think about it. You hadn't let yourself think about that sin because you don't want to think about it. We'll go there for a minute. In your own mind. Confess your sin like the psalmist that we read at the beginning of the service. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Put that sin before you. Mentally, draw, mentally write that sin on a piece of paper. Against you, you only have I sinned, God. Against you have I done what is evil. Call it evil to God. God, I know this is sin. I know this is evil. I know it's just as nasty as what the Sodomites were doing. need to own your sin before you can really worship God for forgiveness. To spend some time in the quiet admitting to the Lord how much you are like the Sodomites. picture that paper that we wrote that sin on Jesus walking up and putting a match to it burning it getting rid of it we say to Jesus hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities oh Jesus create within me a clean heart oh God and renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from your presence take not your spirit from me oh Lord Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Christ looks at you and he says, there's no condemnation for you. I took it on the cross for you. 
Quit punishing yourself. It's forgiven. You're cleansed. One writer expresses the gospel so beautifully saying, All the judgment, all the torment, all the excruciating punishment was poured out on Christ as he died in our place. That's a breathtaking reality, especially when you consider Jesus was on the cross for about three hours. And in that brief window of time, Christ paid for all the sins of all those whom God one day reconciled to himself. In the span of that scant few hours, he was offered once to bear the sins of so many. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, the judge, and by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 sums it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Through his suffering, Christ purchased our forgiveness. Through his sacrifice, he cleared the way for our reconciliation to God. He is our redeemer. He is our king. He is our Lord and our lamb. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.